This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today we're in London and we're talking about savings and the consumer finance business. We'll talk a little bit about cultural differences and savings habits in the UK and other regions of the world and differences amongst generations, millennials, Gen Zs, baby boomers, and how they view the shift to mobile banking and much, much more. Joining us is Des McDade, a managing director in Goldman Sachs Consumer Finance Division, who's overseeing the launch of Marcus by Goldman Sachs in the UK. Des, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jake. So let's start with some broad context around the savings market in the UK. Has this typically been a region of savers and how has people's view of savings changed since the financial crisis? The UK is definitely a nation of savers. Before we launched Marcus, we interviewed 3,000 different consumers to ask how they saved, what they thought about savings. And we found that 85% of people put some money aside every month just to save whether for a rainy day, for a holiday, for a purchase. That nature of savings has been good. But what we also found is actually people aren't very good at saving. So although they're trying to save, 25% of people didn't have a savings account at all. They just either left their money in their current account or actually lots of people just left it at home lying around in little pockets. And we found even 1% of people actually literally left it under the mattress. So it was quite scary that a decade of low interest rates post the financial crisis has just seen that people try to save, but they're just not good at it. Yeah. Well, there wasn't much reward for saving in the wake of the financial crisis. One thing that's obvious when we launched Marcus here in the UK versus the US is there's a much more active debate around getting a fair rate of return on your deposits. Why do you think the debate's so much more robust here than it is elsewhere? 10 years of low interest rates, you know, savings was almost like a forgotten category within banking and also for consumers. And what we saw was that Banks in some way has lost interest in savings and savers. They weren't talking about it. It was like, when was the last time you saw a savings product advertised? And customers had lost interest in savings. That apathy about what they would get is not worth their while switching. Why not leave my money with my current account, an account paying virtually no interest at all? That apathy really kicked in after 10 long years of low interest. So what we saw when we came in, and one of the reasons Marcus was a success, is we put savings back on the agenda. And our starting point was actually we wanted to put the interest back into savings. And that wasn't just about paying a great rate to our customers. It was actually to put savings back on the agenda. Des, you talked a little bit about the awareness of the savings issues and the rates savers are paid. Are policymakers weighing in the space? Because there's not a big debate in the United States around the rates savers are paid for deposits. So there's been a lot of debate and changes in the UK market from the government and the regulators to try and help people to save. So if I think of some of the changes that have been made in the last few years, the personal savings allowance was introduced, which actually made all savings tax-free for the first £1,000 for normal rate taxpayers and £500 for high rate taxpayers. That was due to incentivise people. They've also introduced individual savings accounts and schemes to actually help people get on the housing ladder by saving for deposits. So there's definitely an incentive within the government to put savings back on the agenda. And there's a realization that low interest rates haven't helped savings. So trying to do anything from a government point of view, which drives savings behavior or puts savings back on the agenda or gets people on to savings habits has definitely worked. Whether that's really driven behavior is yet to be seen in some ways, because in some ways, that's added more complexity to the market. People don't necessarily understand, should I have this tax-free savings account or that tax-free savings account? So I think there's a drive for 
simplicity. So policy has been in a good way, but there's still more that can be done. Monetary policy, obviously, very different in different countries. In the wake of the financial crisis, they're emerging from zero interest rates at different paces. What role does monetary policy play in the differences in savings habits in different countries? If I look at the UK first, very much quantitative easing, ring fencing, the retail banks are awash with liquidity, so they don't need savings. If you take that out to Europe, it's very similar. It's been low interest rates for a long time. So again, people need to save, but the returns and the incentives that banks give to them is much lower in that part to it. That's spread out into all over the beta world post the financial crisis. So the banks didn't really want any more yeah. deposits, so they weren't willing to pay for more deposits. Are there other cultural or psychological factors at play in some of the differences around savings? If you look around the world, it's difficult to see cultural or psychological factors in itself. Are people savers or spenders? As a younger person, I was definitely a spender, you know, with my needs for more. And as I got older, I became a saver because I start to think slightly longer term. It's a more of a natural thing to do as you accumulate more wealth. But I'm not sure there's a cultural difference. I know in Germany, it's a fascinating country because 8% of their GDP is actually saved every year. That need to save is definitely ingrained into that culture. I don't think necessarily in the Anglo-Saxon world or in different cultures, you see that as much. It feels to be more of an individual thing. And I think what your education, what you brought up, what your needs are. One thing that's new about Goldman and Marcus is that we actually now have customer service, real live people who answer the phone. What have we learned about customer service as an institution and how is it different here in the UK? When we were launching Marcus in the UK, we spent quite a lot of time thinking about what did we want the Marcus experience to be. And although we're an online bank, what we found was people still need to phone us up sometimes. So people still have questions, people still have concerns. And that's a moment of truth for us when a customer phones. So there were some things that we thought were very, very important. One was that we wouldn't hide our telephone number on our website. I deal with so many companies where I try to phone them and I spend the next hour trying to find their phone numbers. And ironically, that's normally telephone companies at that point. We also wouldn't have an IVR. We didn't want customers to go through press one, press two, press three. You now have a whole new set of options underneath it. We just wanted to be able to actually, if someone wants to phone us, they can talk to us quickly. So we invested a lot of time in actually sort of recruiting agents who were used to dealing with customer service. They came from retailers. They were people who had a really good customer attitude. And we spent an enormous amount of time training them, spending weeks actually working up to make sure that the service they gave was great. We now have something like 50 agents who look after our customers. Uh, we typically try to answer the phone within seconds. People don't have to wait to hold on to the phone with us. And our call centre initially was beside us in London. It will stay in London, but we're also opening a new call centre in Milton Keynes. That centre will have up to 250 agents over time as we grow the business out. And we're really excited because it's an opportunity not just to be a digital bank, but we're a direct bank. When customers choose to phone us, they can actually deal with us on the telephone as well as online. And that gives people a choice. When you look across the rest of the continent yeah. of Europe, where do you see commercial opportunities for a digital bank that's offering higher interest rates? The world is moving more digitally all the time. People use their phones all the time to actually operate. Digital banking is just growing generally. Germany for us is a phenomenal next step opportunity because of the size of the market, the nature of the German saver who wants to actually grow um, and the level of competition that's there. So it's probably the largest single market for us, but also people like France, Italy, Spain, they all offer opportunities for us over time. But for us, our entry strategy will be around the scale of the opportunity, 
the appetite for those customers, the low rates that are often the level of competition. And we think probably Germany is our next logical step. You mentioned that savings habits evolve as you get older, age, and we all age. What do you think might help incentivize better savings among younger demographics like Gen Z or maybe not so young anymore, but the millennials? Well, what we see is that if you look at how millennials consume information, um, they use social media, they use advisors, they use their trusted circle to tell them more. So where we found out from maybe our parents, from advertising, from TV ads, Millennials use social media to actually inform them. And we see that twice as many of our followers are millennials on our social pages. They're the people who look at our advertising in that space. So they want advice. They want easy to do. But what I would say is millennials also want instant gratification. They're used to technology. They're much more able to get things done great way. You know, they go on the phone, they swipe their thumb across the phone and it happens. They're used to that instant gratification. And that's, I think, what we need to do. We need to deploy technology for them. We need to make it easy for them. We need to explain it in a way that exists. And what banks have done historically is they've created products and silos that help the banks operate their money. But now we need to turn it into a customer-centric operation, which actually talks about what customers need and what they're fulfilling. So no one actually has a savings account to save money. They save for a goal. They save for a purpose. We need to change the language a little bit for millennials so they actually understand what they're aiming for. And if we can do that, I think we can help them manage their money earlier than maybe we did in in our ages and progress further in life. What are some of the barriers? You mentioned a couple, alluded to a couple of the ways traditional banks gathered savings or gathered deposits. What are some of the biggest barriers that consumers face today to save more? And how is the industry trying to innovate to break down some of those barriers and reduce some of that friction? One of the hardest things in terms of barriers to save is habit. You have to get into the habit of saving and having easy access and the easy way to move money. So what we find is that an awful lot of products now are just riddled with catches and conditions about why you have to do something. We have products in the UK where, you know, and I sort of exaggerate a little bit, but you can put your money in and then you can only withdraw money on the third Wednesday of a month if it's a (laughs) full moon. And those types of conditions just complicate things. So people have trade-offs in order to get great returns. They have to make sacrifices and compromises all the time. And I don't know why as an industry sometimes we think this is a good thing, that we always have a tease of a great rate and then all these conditions behind it which actually just put people off. So we just need simpler products. And I think that's the core thing that we need to do. Simple, straightforward products that give customers value and are transparent are the things. And that's actually what Marcus stands for in its heart. It's a customer-centric, simple, transparent offer that gives value to our customers. And if we do that as an industry, our consumers will be better off. They'll save more. They'll manage their money better. And they'll like banks more as well. Well, one group that's out to get the banks, the fintech startups, those startups are trying to disrupt the way that business is done in this space and in the way they have in a lot of other industries with a lot of great success. What are the new entrants in the fintech space What do they understand about the consumers that the incumbents, the bigger banks, haven't understood and processed? The fintechs have a great advantage coming into this market. They have no legacy. So they're not like the old banks are more with decades-old systems, old profit pools. They come in with a fresh sheet of paper. The challenge is they don't necessarily have a balance sheet or the capital or the scale to really penetrate. But some of them are creating an awful lot of noise around customer experience. And what they have tapped into is a certain knowledge about how to make things easy for customers, how to present information in such a way, and how to actually pick one problem and solve it really well. 
So there's lots of things that we can learn from the fintechs. And if you look at the user experience, how they've actually grown, some of them have had no marketing at all in terms of it's been word of mouth and advocacy. They've really tapped into the millennial and the early adopter sort of segment, and they've used that social media to grow their business. But what they are really doing is they're solving a customer problem. And that's where banks can learn. If they solve customer problems and they make that their first goal, I think success will come behind them. The challenge for the fintechs is whether they have enough balance sheet or scale to really solve more than one customer problem. A lot of incumbents and large banks have tried to acquire that fintech sensibility inside their firm and built out their own fintech arms. Goldman has done this with Marcus, but other banks have done something similar. Talk a bit about the dynamic of operating a startup within a large financial institution. What are the trade-offs? If I think of the positives, first of all, you have all the fun of a startup with the backing of, in our case, a 150-year-old company behind you. So you have an awful lot of security, you have investment behind you, and you also have a lot of governance behind you. So you have the rigor and challenge and the risk control that makes you just that little bit safer and a little bit more rounded in terms of how you operate. The negative sometimes is that can slow you down a little bit. In a smaller fintech or a startup, you can be more nimble, you know, you get involved in more parts to it, you don't necessarily have as many people in the conversations. That has positive sides in terms of your speed, not necessarily the rigor of some of those conversations. I almost have the best of both worlds in terms of how I operate. I run a effectively a startup business, which has lots of energy, great culture, great people, but I've got the backing of this huge firm behind me. So I've got like a big brother or a big uncle who has their arms around me. They want me to succeed. And they put an awful lot of time and effort behind the company. So we're in a great position. Given the trends you've described, what does the future of consumer banking look like? Will we be doing everything in the future on our phones? In some countries, they've moved further ahead on that than others, notably China. Or will there still be some of the things that we grew up with, certainly retail banks with actual stores on the street or checkbooks and the like? Or is this going to be completely mobile experience? I think it's very hard to predict the future with any accuracy. But you know what I would say is the industry has changed massively over time. And it feels today like the mobile phone will be everything. So I look today and I maybe in 10 years time, I'll look back and think, why was anyone looking at their mobile phone? And it's a different world. But where you do see is that People want things to be faster. People want things to be easier. It's not necessarily about the technology per se. It's about the experience that they, they have. And if we can deliver things quicker, and I always think about Amazon and the uniqueness of Amazon, which says today they're opening branches on high streets to actually get things sort of given to you. And where shops have done really, really well is about distributing products faster to people. So I don't think it's necessarily about are we going to be on our mobile? I think it's just about that we'll consume products faster. And whether that's in mobile, whether it's in faster ways to get to the high street, it doesn't matter. But what I do know is that there is a whole generation of people who don't use mobiles, who aren't comfortable online, that still need to be served by branches. That generation will reduce over time by making it easier and easier. And as the mobile becomes more of your life, more will be done over that. And China is probably a great example. If you look at the WeChats of the world, who are doing everything on the phone, there's a part for that. But I don't think the branch is dead yet. Talk a little bit about the security risks for consumer banking in this digital age. How's an institution like Goldman thinking about the risks to mobile banking and how are governments responding? As a bank, we have an inherent responsibility to look after our customers' money, their information, their data. And that doesn't change whether you're a physical branch or a digital branch. It's the same inherent responsibility. 
the technology that people can use to break into online things it's just changed the landscape but it hasn't changed the problem in terms of where we are so we're in a constant fight to actually take security and to keep ahead of protecting that customer's data and, and money we invest an awful lot of time and effort to make sure we're ahead of that curve but it's something that i think will never stop for us in terms of there will always be people who don't want to do good things our job is to actually protect monies and banks started hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago looking after people's money that's what we do now we just do it in a different landscape you haven't been around since the beginning of banking but yeah. you've been in the industry it, a long it definitely time. feels like it <laughs> <laughs> see you had a long tenure in the space take us a quick tour through your career how you ended up here yeah. at goldman leading the charge on marcus i fell into banking really it wasn't necessarily my ambition in life to be, become a banker but i took a summer job in a NatWest branch in the mid-80s, and I never left. I started off in branches, I moved into the head offices, I went on a management program which gave me a good general management training, and then I moved into private banking, so I worked for Coots & Co for a while, and then moved into direct banking, so I helped launch ING Direct in the UK, which was one of the early startup direct banks. I spent 10 years there running mainly marketing, and I think the core role I probably liked the most was marketing and products, communicating with our customers, developing products, developing services that customers really wanted and understanding what their needs was and actually delivering that. And I've been fortunate to run a number of products across savings, loans, business banking, across a few banks now, but I've mainly been in the UK banking sector in that area. So when you think back to that early job at NatWest in the summer and, and what you were doing then and how you're interacting with the customer today, what's changed the most? If I think back, first of all, I think it really grounded me in terms of what we do, which is actually we look after customers and we look after customers' money and their lives and we help them thrive. And that has always stayed with me in terms of that core grounding in terms of what we do. What's changed in some ways is in terms of how we deliver that. Everything is faster now. You know, when I first started in banking, it was a much more personal service. We knew the people. It was local banking. It was on a high street. You knew the customers who came in every week. There was definitely conversations and relationships. Now it's much more impersonal, but you're still doing the same thing for people. So you transact with much more people much faster. It's efficiency now rather than the actual personal service. But I still think if you think back to what they're trying to achieve and you think there's a customer at the end of it, it's not about £10 moving. It's someone's wages. It's someone's paying for something. If you always think about what they need for their money and what they're doing with it, you'll be in a better place. Going again back to the early days, what surprised you the most? In terms of? How the landscape has changed. I think it's just the speed of change. The number of branches have disappeared. ATMs arrived. Telephone banking arrived. Mobile apps arrived. Contactless payments arrived. Every couple of years, there's new innovation in the world. We just see constant change. And I think banks have been fantastic at adapting. And at the same time, they've adapted very slowly to that part to it. So a lot of things they've done really, really well. But the core thing is looking after customers. You mentioned you started at a branch of NatWest back then. Yeah. Talk a little bit about your family. Were they savers? How did you learn to save? How did you get interested in banking in the first place? I'm originally Irish heritage. So my family would be an Irish immigrant who came over in the 50s. And literally... If I look at my mother, who is probably a fantastic saver, she saves all her life. She always told me when she came to this country, she always had enough money saved for an emergency if she needed to go home. That was her main sort of starting point. But they saved, they bought a house, they thrived, they took their kids for education. And our background was very much around 
working hard, managing our money, looking after our money, and then growing and developing. And I think like many immigrant families, it was that starting a life and then building out from there and creating a platform for our future. I have two sons now, and actually what my values are in terms of how can I give them the best start in life. Well, Des, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on March 5th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. The information contained in this podcast was prepared for general information purposes only, does not constitute research, advice, or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener, and is not a substitute for personalized financial advice. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Goldman Sachs and its affiliates expressly disclaim any liability, including any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage for this podcast and its content.